All right, well, I guess it's old timers day today, Judy. <laughs> you and now me. <clears throat> I guess I shouldn't say that about you, should I, Judy? <laughs> All right, well, I'm going to bring the word today. <clears throat> You'll be happy to know I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> I remember when Judy was part of our team that went into the jail and went into the prison. Whenever it's her turn to share the word, it was always in song, you know, and she got the message across, though. And after what she did today, I just felt like maybe I should just give an altar call because she'd already preached a pretty good message. But, uh, but we'll go on and talk about... Talk about proclaiming. That's what the series that pastors started on, and I'm just going to continue on with that. Proclaiming. Proclaiming the gospel. And specifically, we're talking about what the early church was proclaiming, what the first disciples after the, after the ascension of Jesus, what they were proclaiming. You know, these were men that, and women, they walked and talked with Jesus. They spent several years with him, and they knew what Jesus taught. They knew him intimately. And so I think it's important that we know what it was that they proclaimed. What were they saying? You know, I'm just thinking, today, a lot of people are feeling a hopelessness. You know, really all over the world, but in this country, a lot of people are just feeling like it's just hopeless. You know, not just talking about the pandemic, but just the way this country's going, a lot of people feel like, you know, it's just going downhill. There's, there's nothing we can do about it. It's just getting worse and worse in the world, and uh, not much hope for this country. But you know what? These guys that first started proclaiming the gospel, they faced some adversities too. Things look a little bit hopeless for them. I mean, they're facing opposition by the, the same leaders, the same spiritual leaders that have convinced the crowd to have Jesus crucified, that have convinced the Roman government, the Roman officials to have Him crucified. They're facing that opposition. They're facing the opposition of the, really, of the Roman Empire. They were facing a lot of opposition. And they had really nothing on their, on their side as far as material possessions, power. The only thing they had on their side was the truth. And you look at it, you look at the early church and, and look at it from a natural point of view. Truthfully, it never should have existed. It should have been wiped out a long time ago. And yet here, 2,000 years later, we're still proclaiming what they were proclaiming. There have been countries that have tried to eradicate it, been individuals that have tried to eradicate it, and yet it's still going strong. We might go through, we might be going through some problems, but we're still going strong. So I want to look at a couple of the things that the church and the early church was proclaiming. And we're going to look particularly at uh, Acts chapter 4, the first 12 verses. But before we get to that, I need to set a little bit of background because 
the whole third chapter really is what leads up to this chapter, or leads up to uh, the verses we're going to read. And I didn't want to read all of that because it's quite a bit there. But basically, and most of you know this story, it uh, was shortly after the day of Pentecost, and Peter and John were going up to the temple to pray. And as they were going into the temple, they saw this man sitting there. It was a, a lame man. It says a man that had been lame from birth, been born crippled. Didn't say what he had, but for some reason he was born crippled. And every day... They would bring him and set him there at the, the gate of the temple to beg. In those days, they didn't have any kind of welfare programs or social security or anything. If you were a cripple, you know, and they didn't have many jobs, desk jobs that you could work at if you were a cripple. So if you were disabled, unless you got a family that could support you and wanted to support you, you become a beggar. You sat on the streets corners and beside the road, begging, hoping you get enough to eat for the day. And that was the way with this man. It doesn't say exactly how old he was, but it says that he'd been lame all his life. And he sees Peter and John come in and says, Peter takes notice of him, he's looking at him. And he's looking back at Peter thinking, no, oh, this guy's paying attention to me. Maybe he's going to give me something. And the first statement Peter makes, you know, doesn't give him much hope. He says, I don't have any money. He said, but one thing I can give you, though, in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And says this man, he took his hand, this man jumped up and started walking and leaping and praising God. And, and pretty soon a crowd gathered, they're thinking, What's going on here? We know this guy. He's been lame all his life. He hasn't been able to walk, and now he's not only walking, but he's jumping and leaping and running around. And what's going on? And so Peter began to preach and began to tell him about Jesus. And then we come to chapter 4. And let me just read this. I'll read all 12 verses, and then we'll go back through this. It says, While Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests, the captains of the temp the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there was a resurrection of the dead. They arrested them, and since it was already evening, they put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who heard uh, that heard their message believed it. So the number of men who believed now totaled about five thousand said that after the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached his message then, it said the number was about 3,000. So gives the impression that a couple thousand more got added with this message. <clears throat> Verse 5 says, The next day the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of the religious law uh, met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest. They had all the big shots there. They were all gathered together. They were going to put an end to this. As they brought in the two disciples, Peter and John, says they demanded, by what power and in whose name have you done this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? 
Let me clearly state all of you and all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, The stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. The religious, religious leaders were disturbed. They were upset. They thought they would finish with this Jesus stuff. You know, they crucified Him. You know, He's, he's gone and done. You know, we're through with all of that. And so they're asking these disciples, by what authority? What gives you the right to come out here and preach to these people and talk about Jesus? They were concerned. They were concerned about authority, you know, whose whose authority are you are you doing this under? Because to them, they were the authority. We're, we're the head guy. We're the leaders here. We're the people that can authorize you to preach. What are you doing preaching? Especially in the name of Jesus. We didn't authorize you. We didn't tell you you could do this. You know, religion gets real concerned about authority. But mostly about their own authority. Not so much God's authority, but their own authority. That's why... You know, you see in so many churches, there's, there's such a wide separation between clergy and laity. You know, we the clergy, we're the ones that have all the authority. You're just a bunch of, I'm not talking to you people, but <laughs> churches that believe this, you're just a bunch of ignorant people. You, don't, you can't read and study the Bible for yourself. We'll tell you what to do. We'll tell you what you can do and what you can't do. And that's basically the way the Pharisees were. They were... They thought they were the authority and they didn't want you didn't want these guys preaching. And that's really what they were upset about was their preaching in the name of Jesus. They were they were trying to ignore the fact that this guy got healed because, you know, as it said later on, how could they argue against that? I mean, they knew this guy, everybody knew this guy had been lame all his life and now he was healed, so they're they're questioning, why are you preaching in the name of Jesus? But Peter's sharp enough, he knows he can't, he's not going to argue that, so he goes back to the thing they can't argue about. He says, oh, you want to know by what authority this, this man here has been healed? This man that's been lame all his life, this man that's been a beggar, this man that's been a drain on his family, this man that's you know, had the shame of having to beg for his living, that that's, now he's healed? This good deed that we've done for this man, that is that what you're asking us about? And like I say, they couldn't argue against that, but they weren't concerned about that. They weren't concerned that here was somebody that was helped that they hadn't been able to help. They were concerned about the fact that these guys were still preaching in the name of Jesus. And so anyway, after all this, Peter begins to preach to them. He begins to make a proclamation to them. 
And we're going to look at a couple of things that he proclaimed. But first of all, I'm going to tell you what he didn't proclaim. First of all, he didn't proclaim they were starting a new religion. He didn't say, oh yeah, we've got this idea for a new religion. It's a lot easier than your Jewish religion. We don't have all these rules and regulations. It just all, you know, it all has to do with believing. It's so much simpler. Why don't, you know, you guys ought to come with us. He didn't proclaim a new religion. That isn't what Jesus came to do. And that's not what the disciples were trying to do. And they weren't proclaiming themselves. They weren't telling them what great men of faith they were, how they had all this power. But they began to proclaim a man. They said, it's not by our ability. It's not by our power. But it's in the name of Jesus, the authority of Jesus. And just to make sure, they said, Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the one from Nazareth, you know that one. Oh, also the one you crucified a few weeks ago. We want to make sure you know which Jesus it is we're talking about. Oh, by the way, he's also the one that God raised up from the dead again, just in case you'd forgotten that. They wanted to make sure they knew which one that they were talking of, which Jesus it was that they were talking about. You know, I'm sure there were other people by the name of Jesus. They wanted to make sure they knew the right one. The Pharisees, like I say, they thought they were through with that. They were through with this Jesus. But basically, Peter's saying, he's back. He's back. And now he's several thousand strong. He goes on and he says, the stone that the builders rejected had become, has become the cornerstone. The Pharisees were supposed to be the builders. They were the leaders in Jerusalem. They were the leaders in Israel. They were the ones that were supposed to be building God's kingdom. But actually all they were doing is building their own kingdom. They were protecting their position. That was one of the reasons they had Jesus crucified because He was stirring up people so much they were afraid the Romans were going to come and take away their position, their authority. Because the Romans had kind of tolerated them, you know, as long as they kept quiet and didn't stir up things too much. But if things got stirred up and people got, you know, excited about religion too much, why they might come and take their position away, their authority away. And they didn't want that. So they were more concerned about their kingdom than they were the kingdom of God. And it says, this, this stone that they rejected, Jesus, it became the cornerstone. Of course, the cornerstone is what a building is built on. You know, we don't use cornerstones much anymore, don't use that kind of construction, but when they built buildings out of stone, the cornerstone was the first stone that was laid. And it had to be perfect. It had to be right. If it was a little crooked or uneven or whatever, the whole building would be off. It says he's become the cornerstone. He's become the thing that this whole thing is being built on. The whole kingdom is being built on that cornerstone. In uh, Romans 
chapter 9. We've been studying Romans on Wednesday night, and we just went through this. <clears throat> but it talks about, Paul's talking here about that cornerstone. It says, they stumbled, talking about the Jews, and particularly the Pharisees. They stumbled over the great rock in their path. God warned them of this in the Scriptures when He said, I'm placing a stone in Jerusalem that makes people stumble. A rock that makes them fall. But anyone who trusts in Him will never be disgraced. He's quoting actually out of Isaiah. So way back in Isaiah, hundreds of years before, God was telling them, this rock's going to come along. I'm going to put a rock in Jerusalem, a cornerstone. And a lot of you are going to stumble over it. Instead of it being a stepping stone, it's going to be a stumbling stone. It's going to be the end of a lot of you, but for others, it's going to be the beginning. He said, this is the stone that you guys rejected, but now God's using it as the cornerstone to build something permanent, to build a, a kingdom, build a city of God. And then they go on in verse, Peter goes on, verse 12, he says, There's a salva there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Now that really has got to get them stirred up. You're saying this is the only one, the only name, the only way, the only person? I mean, isn't that kind of exclusive? You know, that's one of the accusations that's often brought against Christians is, oh, you guys are exclusive. You think you're the only way. You think you're the only way to heaven. Well, in one sense, they're right. We're exclusive in thinking that's the only way. But in the other sense, we're not exclusive because it's whosoever. All who received Him give you the power of become sons of God. It's all about Jesus. Moses couldn't save them. Abraham couldn't save them. May come as a shock to you, but Pastor Tom can't save you. Muhammad, Buddha, whatever, they can't save you. Only Jesus. Again, going back to Romans chapter 10, verses 2 to 4, it says, here again, Paul's talking about the Jews, and he said, I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it's misdirected zeal. For they don't understand God's way of making people right with Himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in Him are made right with God. So Paul's saying here, zeal doesn't necessarily make you being right. You can be very zealous for something, excited and just believe with all your heart, but that doesn't make it right. That doesn't mean it's true. The, the, these Pharisees, they were very zealous. They were doing everything they could to kill this new movement. But Jesus came to fulfill the law. It didn't say He did away with the law. It says He came to fulfill it. 
to be the sacrifice for those of us that, that can't live up to the law. The Pharisees and the Jewish people, that was their way to get saved, was to obey the law. But unfortunately, we can't do it completely. And so Jesus had to come and do it for us. So they were proclaiming a person, the person of Jesus, and that's, that's what it's all about. And the second thing is they were proclaiming a power. Back in verse 10, again, it said, the powerful name of Jesus. There's a power behind that name. There's a power behind the gospel. Romans 1.16, which pastor quotes quite often, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Now, at me, that doesn't sound very exclusive. It says to everyone who believes. But there's a power. Only the gospel, only the good news has the power to really save us, to set us free. Some people say, well, save me from what? You know, I'm not all that bad a person. I'm a pretty good person, you know. I do a lot of good things and, you know, I don't cheat on my taxes and I don't steal and I don't rob and, you know, we, we get the feeling, you know, maybe we don't need Jesus because we're a pretty good person. This was really the problem with the Pharisees. They thought they were pretty good, you know, and by human standards they were. They were pretty good people. But the problem is God doesn't judge us by human standards. You know, some of us, and unfortunately a lot of us, when we judge by human standards, they go, oh, I'm not all that bad. You know, a scale of 1 to 10, I'm probably, oh, at least an 8, maybe a 9. I know a few people maybe are 9 and a half, but, you know, there's no 10s because nobody's perfect, you know. But the only problem is God expects a 10. And really, if you get to looking at it, on God's scale, we're not a 9 or an 8. We're probably more like a minus 20 or something like that. But <laughs> I thought it was interesting, you know, as like I say, we've been studying the book of Romans on Wednesday nights. And one of the things that really struck me as I was reading the first couple of chapters, Paul is talking about how... How rotten we are, I guess you could say. How bad we are. How far we are from God's plan. How messed up we are. I mean, he starts off the whole first couple of chapters, and you read those, you know, if you don't go any farther, you get to think, man, I'm, I'm pretty, there's no hope for me. But until we understand how bad we are, we don't really appreciate how good the gospel is. You know, the Bible says the gospel is good news. What's the good news? Well, the good news is that before you knew Christ, you were hopeless. There was no hope for you. You were, well, I won't tell you what you were, but you weren't too good. So that makes the good news so much better. So much better. You know, it's, like I say, until we know the good news, 
or the bad news, we don't really understand the good news all that much. We don't appreciate it. I was uh, thinking about the, the story that Jesus told in, I think it was Luke 7, where it talks about uh, Jesus. He went to a, was invited to a Pharisee's house. It's one of the few Pharisees that was brave enough to invite Jesus to his house, but he went to his house and Jesus is laying there, they're, you know, reclining at the table, and this woman comes in, and the Bible says she was a notorious sinner. Now, I don't know what her sin was, whether she's a prostitute or what, drug addict, whatever, but says she was a notorious sinner. First of all, she must have had a lot of nerve to even come into the Pharisee's house, but she goes and starts washing Jesus' feet. She breaks this bottle of perfume pours it on his feet and then begins to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with her, uh, with her hair. And, and uh, Simon, there's the name of the, the Pharisee, says he got to thinking, this guy claims to be a prophet and he doesn't even know who this woman is. I mean, if he knew who this woman is, he wouldn't let her, he wouldn't even let her, let her touch him. And Jesus perceived what he was thinking, probably could tell by the look on his face, because he probably had a scowl on his face and looking at this woman, and what kind of nerve does she have even coming into my house, you know, an unclean woman coming into the house of a righteous Pharisee. And Jesus, so Jesus says, um, says to him, Simon, I got something to tell you, say to you. And Simon says, okay, say it. And when you tell that to Jesus, you better be ready to listen. So he told a story. He said there was a, there was a, a money lender that had loaned a couple of people money and said one of them owned or owed, it was like 500 denarii, which is probably in today's economy, a half a million dollars. The other guy, he only owed a few thousand dollars. And he said, because neither one of them were able to pay it back, he said the money lender forgave both of them. He said, uh, which one do you think would love him the most? Oh, well, the one that, for, you know, he forgave the most to. Sure, you know, I'd, he'd love him a lot more. And then he goes on to tell him how, you know, you when I came in your house, you didn't anoint my head, you didn't wash my feet, didn't do anything. This woman, she's done all this and, and tells her that her sins are forgiven. And I think... This Pharisee probably misinterpreted this altogether. He's probably thinking, oh, well, this woman, she loves Jesus a lot because she's got a lot of sins to forgive. And me, I don't love as much because I don't have much to be forgiven of. But the truth is, we all have got debts that we can't pay to God. We've all got a debt that we can't pay. And the only way it can be paid is by accepting what Jesus did, the payment that He made for it. That's the only way. That's the power of the gospel. It's a power that will save us from our sins. It's a power that will transform us. It will set people free from bondages of all kinds. In uh, 2 Timothy 3.5, talks about in the last days, there's going to be people that will act religious, people that will 
show a form of godliness or claim a form of godliness, but they deny or reject the power thereof. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, if you just be a good person, you know, go to church once in a while, throw a few dollars in the tithing bucket, you know, and do those, you'll be fine. But that's not what the gospel teaches us. It's trusting in the Lord. If we deny the power, it, it's, it doesn't do us any good. And yet I've known people that they don't believe in the virgin birth. They don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. They don't believe in His miracles. And yet they call themselves Christians. And I thought, how can you do that? How can you be a Christian if you don't believe all that? If you don't believe in the power that sets us free, the power that delivers us from our, the bondage of sin, the power that delivers people from drug addictions and alcoholism. I mean, just look at these, these disciples. One but a few weeks before that, they were hiding. They were behind closed locked doors because they were afraid of the Jews. And now they're out here preaching to the very people that crucified Jesus. The people that had the power to have them executed. Because the power of the gospel set them free. Let me read to verse 12 again. If I can find my sheet there. Verse 12 says, There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. These are the things that they were proclaiming in the early church. And these are the things that we need to be proclaiming today. And when I'm talking about proclaiming, I'm not just talking about behind a pulpit. I'm talking about every day. In fact, most of the proclaiming I've done in my time has not been behind a pulpit. It's been in the recreation room of a jail or a prison or on a phone with a plate of glass plate between me and somebody. You're proclaiming maybe sitting on the couch with your kids or somebody in your family. You're proclaiming could be on your lunch break with an em another employee, with a fellow laborer or fellow worker. And you think, oh, I don't know, you know, if I do that, I might lose my reputation, you know. I might even lose my job. Some places you can lose your job for talking about Jesus and talking about the gospel. Well, these men, they knew they could lose their lives. They knew at any time these Pharisees could have them arrested, could have them crucified just like Jesus, could have them thrown into prison. And yet they were not afraid to preach. And I would just think, and I apply this to myself as much as to anybody. I think today... Too many Christians hold their life too dear. It's like, oh, anything that's a risk, I don't, I don't know if I want to do it or not. God, would God really want me to take that kind of a risk? Well, if it'll help proclaim the gospel to people, I believe He would. 
And I'm not talking about having a death wish or a martyr wish. You know, I want to be martyred for God. I'm just talking about not being afraid to speak out when God gives you the opportunity. Even if it may bring ridicule. Even if it may bring the loss of a job or whatever. But proclaiming what these men proclaimed. And like I said... It was only the power of God. It was only what they were proclaiming that kept this going. People have tried over the centuries to exterminate it, to get rid of it, but it's still being preached. And it's going to be preached to the end. And I don't know about you, but I want to be proclaiming it to the end.